0: And gospel with Dr. Helissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. All right, so what I'd like to do today is to recap something from 2020. And if you remember, a very significant event occurred in 2020, which was the onset of COVID, the C word, right? Boo. Boo, very boo-boo. But I wanted to look back because we just uh, had the 10th of Tevet, which is a fast day in Zechariah. And... After kind of reading some chats and and listening to some feedback in our our weekly class this week, um, I realized that not everybody was still clear on the fast of the 10th month. Why do we fast? What's the historical reference for that. What does it have to do with us today? Because we tend not to be interested in things that don't affect us today. And sometimes maybe if you went to Wikipedia and looked up the fast and it gave you some Jewish history, you say, well, that doesn't really affect me today. I don't, I'm not interested in that fast. And of course it's it's not a Torah commandment. So it's it's within your purview, whether you choose to observe it or to what extent. It's not as severe as say a Yom Kippur fast. Uh, It's from sunup to sundown. But it's an important day in terms of remembering the siege of Jerusalem. And Zechariah thought these four secondary fasts were so important that he recorded them and said that in a future time, they will be turned into occasions for celebration and joy, not for fasting. Well, I don't think we're quite there yet because if, and and I'll show you the slides where the World Health Organization made official COVID on the 10th of Tevet two years ago. And we've also looked at some prophecy between then and um, the onset of the tribulation from the rabbinic sources, which I don't know know how much of that you know. But of course, we know the rabbis are saying that uh, just before the tribulation, there would be a worldwide plague. And then they said there would be a Shemitah year. Now that should start to sound familiar because we just came out of a Shemitah year. And then they said there would be these seven years of tribulation, that the first year there would be famine here and there. We but really nothing, you know, that would cause you to run to the altar and repent. Here, there. There's trouble here, there's trouble there, but but nothing that would really. You know, we're kind of wiping our brow and saying, whew, you know, COVID didn't get me. It got a lot of people, but it didn't get me. Or the economy got some people, but it didn't get me. You have to say, well, yet. If it's not affected you, it's just not affected you yet. It probably has. It's beginning to creep in. If you've been to the grocery store, if you've been to the gas pump, if you've tried to get anything in from FedEx or UPS that was not broken, crushed, (laughs) late lost. It's like everything within the supply chain is it's iffy. And we're just on one year. And we're not saying this is the great tribulation, but we're saying there's a pattern and it might be for our generation, our tribulation. The pattern might've been given for us to understand that and say, okay, this is your tribulation. How are you going to react to it based on the information that I've given you in the scriptures? And so I did want to take a look back because if that is the pattern, if that's what we're working with, I don't know. But if if the pattern so far seems to be hitting all the boxes or checking all the boxes, then we can expect in this coming year that plagues will get worse. Famines will increase in the coming year. It will be more widespread. In the third year, it will be everywhere. It will affect the entire earth. And if you remember, that's kind of what drove the the Israelites down into Egypt was a worldwide famine. And they weren't kidding when they said worldwide. You could probably, you know, if you knew how to take the the geological samples all over the earth for that period of time, you'd probably find out there was famine all over the earth. You know, scripture doesn't kid around. There was no place to go. And so in that fourth year, it's going to be much worse, except The rabbis say some interesting things and and lots of literature to read, but they say for the righteous, for those who were sealed, they will begin to see a a turn that, yes, they will still be in, in tribulation, but somehow their experience begins to change and they will begin coming out. They will start a journey out of tribulation while the world is still descending into a deep darkness. And this is one explanation they have of how the days are shortened which we know Yeshua alluded to that. He says, unless those days were shortened, no man would be saved. And I think he's even talking about righteous people. Those days are shortened for the righteous. For the sake of the righteous, the days will be shortened. Are they also shortened for the wicked? They don't think so. They think they get the full you know, seven years. That's when I wanna go back to 2020 and, and look at something that now makes a little more sense. Because I think when I was here last time, I did the concise history of the beast yes. to just hit the bullet point so you could understand well, how did Babylon, how did Medo-Persia, how did Greece, how did Rome, how did they become the red one? And what I didn't do is really give you the much history of the serpent itself, because the serpent had to pass off his authority to Babylon. Uh, the, the beast takes his authority from the serpent. And I think I showed you a little bit of like passing the baton when we know Pharaoh Necho was defeated at Babylon. And and what happened was he was lured out of the Nile. He was lured out of Egypt, out of his domain. The domain of Pharaoh, the domain of the crocodile, the domain of the serpent is the water. It's a water creature. That's where his strength is. In order to extend his authority and his power over the earth, he has to pass off some of that authority and power to the beast-based kingdoms, to a land-based kingdom like Babylon, who's going to pass off to Medo-Persia, who's going to pass off to Greece, who's going to pass off to Rome. So it's one statue. It's just, it's one entity. You've got the Babylonian head, you've got the Medo-Persian upper torso, you've got the Greek lower torso here, and then you've got the Roman legs and then the mixed feet that we're dealing with today. But remember, it's one entity. We're not talking, okay, what did Babylon do? That was something separate from something Medo-Persia did or something that Greece did or something that Rome did. It's not like that. It's, It's one evolving thing. And so the same authority that the serpent passed off to Babylon in order to, even though he was defeated on land, he passed off that authority for wickedness onto the land. And that has extended down into the feet all the way from Babylon today. And that's why in Revelation, you don't leave Babylon behind. You're still going to hear Babylon the Great has fallen, fallen. And remember, when you hear a repetition, two time periods, fallen, Babylon in the past fell. Second one, fallen, Babylon in the future will fall. That statue will fall over. And the falling of that statue, by the way, is associated with the revelation of dry bones. Ezekiel's dry bones, It's thought when those dry bones came to life and and came together, ligament to ligament, that that statue of Nebuchadnezzar just went, bam, and it was destroyed at that time, which tells you that when life is breathed back in to Israel, we might associate that with the resurrection of the dead. When Israel comes together and life is breathed back into Israel, then at that point, Babylon the Great will have its second thought. Okay, that was the quick history from the land base. What I want to do is back up and look at the serpent because it has to do with our Torah portion. So I want to review and make sure that, you know, we've got lots of people who have been there from the beginning. They understand how this tracks, but we get lots of new people all the time who don't necessarily know everything we know. Or sometimes I know things and I forget things that I know, so I don't really know them. I just knew them. (laughs) So this helps me too. All right, so the Torah portion is... Which means and lived, just like you say, right? It means life, live. And the title that I used back in 2020 was Egypt, Wales, and Torah never fails, (laughs) right? I do. Technology does, but not the Torah. So, just to review right quick again, the 10th of Tevet, because you say, well, what does the 10th of Tevet, what does this fast you're talking about, have to do with Pharaoh and the serpent and all that? Well, Again, if certain events happened on the 10th of Tevet, and then there's prophecies aimed at Pharaoh in Egypt in association with the 10th of Tevet, we got a link. So we need to understand why we're fasting on the 10th of Tevet. Like, what does this have to do with me? It has everything to do with us, or Zechariah would not have brought it up. So the 10th of Tevet, which is the 10th month, it's the siege of Jerusalem. That's when the siege of Jerusalem by Babylon will begin. So if Babylon is still present in Revelation, if we still have another fallen to deal with, and we don't know if we're the generation or not, but let's just assume that we are, because that's how every generation has to roll. You have to assume this is happening in your generation, because even if it doesn't, it's leaving this legacy of expectation and hope to your children that you're living as though. Because you can read in the, the book of Acts, they were firmly convinced that Yeshua was just, you know, he'll be right back. He he just stepped out for a second. He'll be right back. Well, now we're 2000 years later and we keep telling people he'll be right back. He just stepped out for a sec. He'll be right back. Just hold on. But, you know, it could be true. We've seen Israel become a nation, which hasn't happened for 2000 years. So why wouldn't other spectacular things also come to pass? So we look at the history. History is cyclical. And we see that certain events in Israel's history, even world history, have come to pass on these particular fast days, not just the Moedim, but the fast days. So if the siege of Jerusalem began on the 10th of Tevet, then let's see what's happened in our recent history. Just pulled up a document from World Health Organization, and it says data as reported on January the 20th, 2020. And in their bullet points for that day, which is the 10th of Tibet, 2020, it says the Chinese authorities identified a new type of coronavirus, which was isolated, on 7 January 2020. That's the 10th of Tibet. It became a thing Mm -hmm. officially on that day. We don't know when it really began because we don't know how long they were monkeying around with this stuff. Um, But at least the, the isolation of it is going to occur on the 10th of Tibet. This is when the siege began. And building on what we went over last week, who is Jerusalem? We are. You started under siege two years ago on the 10th of Tibet. And it's not as if Babylon hadn't been persecuting up to that point. They had been, they'd been harassing Israel, and you were harassed up to that point. But has it come anywhere near the way that you have been harassed in the last two years by multiple entities? It might have been through politics, it might have been economically militarily, medicine, the health system. There's all sorts of system. Like we say, the shipping has become involved in it. You know, there's there's no short, it's just like dominoes. Everything is affecting it. Well, this is a judgment on Pharaoh. It feels like a judgment on us. Sometimes it's a judgment on Pharaoh. That's what's happening. And he's finding out, it's like, he's put the hook in Pharaoh's jaw. And remember, Pharaoh is the crocodile of the Nile. Tanin, Leviathan, Nechash, these are all equivalent expressions for a serpent. Some are going to be land-based, like the Nechash. You've got Leviathan, who is an ocean-based serpent. And then you've got the the Tanin, who is the crocodile of the Nile. It's Pharaoh who thinks he's the god of, of the Nile. And so equivalent expressions. You can read prophecy about one, and it is linked to prophecy about a different kind of serpent. He says okay i'm going to put a hook in your jaw you're going to be like a fish and i'm going to start reeling you in and the point of that is going to see who sticks to Pharaoh's scales it, the, that's the way like you pull the fish up or you pull the crocodile up and you check and who is hanging onto that armor because the the scales of leviathan are so tight in fact leviathan has double armor you can't get in there it, it's like a supernatural thing to be able to go in there and to destroy leviathan which we know King Messiah will do. But how do you tell who has made Leviathan or the serpent their stronghold? You start fishing him up and exposing him out of the ocean. See, he's been swimming in the ocean of the peoples all this time. Pull him up far enough. And now we can see who's still hanging onto those scales. By contrast, Yeshua made fishers of men. So we can see who's clinging to Yeshua. Which of these fish are clinging to him. So we're going to move along here. And it's uh, that passage is Ezekiel 29. Ezekiel 29, one. in the 10th year, in the 10th month, on the 12th of the month. So we passed that. We had uh, the 10th of Tevet was Tuesday, right? That was our fast day. And so the 12th would have been Wednesday. It would have been Thursday, right? And so now we're a couple of days later, uh, but it's still relevant Because now we're at this this stage of the process. It tells us where we are right now. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, this is what the Lord God says. Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great monster that lies in the midst of his canals, that has said, my Nile is mine and I myself have made it, which of course is what the Egyptians believed that somehow Pharaoh was the god of the Nile. He says, I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your canals cling to your scales, and I will bring you up out of the midst of your canals, and all the fish of your canals will cling to your scales. Now you should hear a repetition right there. Repetitions mean things. Remember, this is in our toolbox now. If we see a repetition, it's not just for emphasis sometimes, it's to tell us about Two separate fulfillments. And so we know that has Egypt kind of been pulled up and exposed and destroyed at one point already in history? Sure, Cleopatra was Greek. <laughs> she wasn't Egyptian. But would it happen in the future, just like Babylon the Great has fallen, fallen? Will there be a future time? Or are we in the time? Is the what every generation has to ask when he says, I will bring you up out of the midst of your canals, all the places he has influence. Remember, he's the crocodile of the Nile, but he can go up in all these canals. He can go up in medicine. He can go up in economics. He can go up in politics. He can go in all the places where there is a system. Remember, the the spots of the leopard are systems, right? For the serpent, it shows his influence. He's out there just worming his way around through all these systems and influencing them. Does it mean he controls every single one? No, but you better be careful when you stick your foot in there. (laughs) You don't know where he is. They lurk. And he says, I'm going to expose you in these canals. I'm going to pull you up out of these systems. And so we've seen a lot of snakes come bubbling up out of, we had no idea politics were so bad, but they are. We had no idea that medicine was so corrupt, but it is. And every system that we leaned on, and remember he says, I'm going to destroy you because my people have been leaning on you, but you're just a reed that's going to snap and pierce their hands. They're nothing to be leaned on. You're in the system, but don't depend on the system. He says, I have to expose you and all of the fish from those systems that are going to cling to your scales. He says, I will abandon you to the wilderness, you and all the fish of your canals. You will fall on the open field and you will not be brought together or gathered. And that's what happens to a fish or to a crocodile. They can't stay out of water indefinitely. And that's why the serpent had to pass his authority off to the beast kingdoms. He crawled out of the Nile to go attack Babylon and lost badly. And he went running back to Egypt, but he never regained the power that he had had before because he left his domain. Uh, He says, I have given you for food to the animals of the earth and to the birds of the sky. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt will know that I am the Lord because they have been only a staff made of reed to the house of Israel. So that's just long story short there. Be careful how much dependency you place upon a system of men. You can use the system, you know, as long as it's biblically kosher, but if you're depending upon that system so hard that it would entice you away from the commandments of Adonai, you you got issues. Cuz now you're you're clinging to Pharaoh's scales because of the security you think he's offering. Right. So, um Kind of back to our Torah portion. We've seen a progression here with the life of Joseph. Very interesting story, the life of Joseph. But we also see that if we go up a Torah portion or two, we're going to see a blessing that falls on Joseph that's going to to make him equal to his other brothers and even consecrate it above his brothers for a particular mission. But one of Joseph's blessings, the house of Joseph is to multiply like fish, right? So there's two kinds of fish. There's gonna be fish, the offspring of Yosef, who are gonna be fished back out of the waters of the nations by his disciples. But there's also gonna be fish out there that stick to the scales of Pharaoh. And we know from Job 41, 33, and 34, that the serpent, Leviathan, the Tanin, whichever appearance he might be making in a different context, his big thing is pride. That's his problem. Everything starts with pride, like on the wicked lamp. Starts with a proud look, then it goes to a lying tongue, then to hands that shed innocent blood, then to a heart that devises wicked plans, then to feet that run quickly to evil, then to a false witness breathing out lies, which we know he is a false witness. Mm -hmm. Our problem is sometimes he's telling the truth about us. We don't want that to happen. If he's accusing, uh, we would prefer for it to be a false witness than for him to be telling on us because we actually did that. And of course, at the end, the culmination of all of it is he separates brothers, and that's that's what pride begins when there's pride. And you know, there's several manifestations of pride. Mockery. Remember Ishmael. You start mocking and making fun of people. That's that's danger ground. You have to be really careful about making fun of people, even if they kind of. Ask for it sometimes, <laughs> um, you know. But we're not talking about just being goofballs with one another. But we're talking about this this mockery because it makes you feel better than somebody. It says nothing on earth is like Leviathan. He's one made without fear. He looks on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Those are the fish that will stick to his scales people with pride and they really have no fear of Adonai. Remember that was what was the with Abraham and Isaac they were particularly concerned with that when it came to say you're my sister so I won't get killed. They said there is no fear of Adonai in this place. And where there's no fear of Adonai there's really no ethics. There's nothing to protect us. Because there's a pride there that says you were over the one who created you. But as Ezekiel goes on, uh in Ezekiel 37:10, he's Uh, talking again about this two-stick prophecy that most of us are familiar with in the dry bones chapter kind of continues that narrative. But remember this dry bones chapter, the understanding was at the resurrection that this is going to be the very moment when the golden image of Babylon topples over and is destroyed. But here's what he says. So I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them, into these dry bones. And they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. So this is not just resurrection. I know we all think we're going to be resurrected and float on a cloud to the garden. And then we're going to, you know, going to have ice cream, milk and honey. That's ice cream, right? But first there is an exceedingly great army that is raised up. And that's important because Messiah has come on a mission. When we hear the footsteps of Messiah, he is coming with purpose uh, on this second mission. And part of that purpose is these two sticks are going to be one in his hand. And this is, I think, the moment. I mean, I think we're getting glimpses now, especially if we have relationships within the Jewish community. We're starting to see some recognition in their eyes. And certainly some of us, have some recognition in our eyes as to what their role has been all this time to preserve the Shabbat, to preserve the Torah, to preserve the feast, to make sure we had something to grab onto when it was time to go. But now I think we're starting to see some recognition in their eyes that Joseph's mission and being sent out there to the nations like Joseph was to evangelize them, to turn them away from idolatry. Which other one human figure in the history of the world has turned so many people away from the idolatry. It's Yeshua. That's the gospel. That's it. Now, does that mean that they're keeping 613 commandments? No, it doesn't. But it means they're keeping way more than they were, right? They're at least, hopefully, keeping the more ethical of the commandments. It's, it's something you can start with, something you can work with. And so you see that Joseph has been out there evangelizing the nations the best way he knew how, and there will come a point where Judah's going to recognize him. But Joseph has had a unique leadership role as well. They're they're working side by side. They have complementary roles. And so Judah has this leadership role, Torah observance, which now we can appreciate. Well, there will come a point, I think, where with Judah, they are going to appreciate the work that Joseph has done among the Egyptians. And so both of these houses can return to the mountains of Israel with their companions. There will be extra fish stuck to those scales. And so Judah will draw near his brother, who's going to look a whole lot like the nations. And as we look around, we look pretty much like the culture we were brought up in. Right? Some of us, we look a little weird, especially on Shabbat, but. For the most part, you know, the FedEx guy really doesn't know us from anyone else. You know, he may have never asked what that little box is on our door. He may have never asked you, why are you wearing weird fringes? (laughs) (laughs) It's something different, but not enough usually to start a conversation. But what Joseph is going to maintain and what's going to set him apart is what set him apart in Egypt. He never lost his holiness. You realize that? He said no to Pharaoh's wife. He said no basically to theft, and and he did not forget the commandments. And so as we're being called back to the commandments, what will set us apart? We have an awareness and a practice of holiness that does set us apart from other people. Now, in some cases, if we're new, we may not really know what holiness is. We always thought the book of Leviticus was incomprehensible and boring, but now we're finding it fascinating. Oh, my goodness. You mean you can understand those four horses of revelation if you understand leprosy? Yeah. Yeah. He's not giving you new information. He's giving you the the old information and helping you understand how it affects today. So Joseph has not lost the resurrection testimony. He's alive. He still lives. Joseph lives. And Mashiach, Ben Yosef, he's alive. He lives. He was cut off, but he lives. And so now we're we're entering into a, an era where Joseph is willing to follow Judah to the feasts, right? And this is why the dragon has to make war with them. Because at the point, they recognize one another and appreciate one another. Not just recognize, because how long have we troubled one another and been jealous of one another? Well, all that Jewish stuff, you know, I just want to keep the Torah. And I'm like what do you think they're doing? You know, they don't know Torah, but you know, we, I feel like we need to reinvent that wheel. And there's so many wheels that are already invented and we're just reinventing it and wasting a lot of time because we're still mad at the church or somebody that we felt like didn't tell us the truth. And so we think anything they could tell us is also not the truth, but now you kind of move through that stage and you say, wait a minute, this is my brother. And my brother has been protecting something for a long time because he was keeping it for me. The father put that in my brother's hand for me. We know what the father put in our hands for Judah. He put Yeshua in our hands for Judah, but he put Torah in Judah's hand for Joseph. And so the dragon has to make war because if these two ever get together, you can't stop them. Leviathan can't stop them. It doesn't matter if he's in every ocean on earth, it won't matter. And so when the serpent sees Judah and Joseph moving closer together, that's what I mean. Like, make sure if he's, the serpent's accusing you that it's not the truth (laughs) that you didn't actually do that. But he's losing accusation privileges over the house of Israel. If they're not doing those things anymore that they shouldn't be doing, Or if they have started doing those things that they should have been doing, what is the serpent going to accuse you of? Is he going to say, Well, they don't keep Shabbat anymore, but you do? Well, they don't keep Passover anymore, but you do. They eat pigs, but you don't. You see how he's going to know his time is short? He's running out of stuff to bring up in court. And if the accuser runs out of charges to bring to the judge, the judge is eventually going to say, What do you got? If you got nothing, get out you're wasting my time. So he's he's done a really good job of keeping brothers apart. But once this combined stick of the Torah and the testimony come together, it's going to defy any false testimony he might continue to bring. He now becomes a false witness, breathing out lies, because now Joseph and Judah are on the same page. They've become that, that one tree. They have become faithful witnesses. So he gets thrown out of of court, his time short. And it's said in the, the rabbinic literature that at the end of days, this great sea serpent, Leviathan, and they say he envelops the whole world, which tells you we're not looking for the white whale. Okay, It's not Moby Dick. It's a system that has infested and enveloped the entire world. The seas or the oceans can represent the people's. But we also know he passed off that authority to the land-based beast kingdoms. They're in those systems. It's in the canals. It's in the leopard spots that Rome simply expanded into athletics. All right. Athletics is a big one still. You can add that to all these other systems. But they say the righteous at the end of days will be tighter than the scales. Of Leviathan, you know how he's got these this double armor. It says you can't get anything between them. Well, they say this army that's going to be raised up from the dry bones, Judah and Joseph, the one tree. They're going to be so strong and so united and so together that even though they are two, they are one. Just like the one, the two sticks became one tree. They're going to have the same message. They're not going to be twisting clean into unclean. They're going to be one completely kosher testimony. They're going to be one living commandment. And they say it when King Messiah slays Leviathan, that he's going to take that skin and form a sukkah for the righteous. And that's going to be a great thing because you can look at how tight those scales are and say, we were tighter. We were tighter than that army. And it's going to be for the benefit of those who stick to the testimony of Yeshua and the commandments of Elohim. So we want to look at uh, what happens in this week's Torah portion. Let's look at Genesis 47, 29, and we can see the point. And if you remember the principle of, of the beast and Israel, remember it's impossible for them to maintain stasis. If Israel is rising, the beast must descend. If Israel is descending, the beast must rise. It can never be like this. It's either this, this. One affects the movement of Israel is going to affect the beast. And so even today, where it looks like the beast is ascending, it's an illusion. Because the truth is Israel is ascending and the beast is descending. He knows his time is short because he's so furious. At this point, because he can see the Torah and the testimony arising all over the earth, and it's just a matter of getting these two brothers to recognize one another now. There's nothing left. If he can stay between those scales, you know, but what if they're, those, they come together, they're tight like scales, he raises up a mighty army, he's got nothing left, absolutely nothing. It's the enmity between brothers that gives him strength. So it says, when the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son, Yosef, and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. With his fathers, not with the Egyptians. And he said, I will do as you have said. He said, Swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. and. Why did he want to go to where his fathers were buried? Again, that's Chevron is the general region. The town is Kiryat Arba, which is the city of four pairs. So the idea of the pairs there—we went over that last week. Uh, so you've got four pairs. You've got Adam and Eve. You've got Abraham and Sarah. You've got Isaac and Rivka, and then you've got Jacob. And you know, at this point, apparently, Leah is already there. And so the cave. The smallest is going to be Machpelah. Machpelah. It's going to be the, a place for these pairs. It's such an important place because it's thought to be the entrance back to the Garden of Eden. And in Temple times, the Second Temple times at least, I'm not sure about First Temple. There is a spring outside of Chevron that was, I guess you would call it an aqueduct. It was a man-made sort of thing for the water from there was sent to Bethlehem, and then from Bethlehem to the temple mount where the high priest would immerse on Yom Kippur. So the the high priest on Yom Kippur is immersing in the waters of Hebron. It was that important in terms of being an entrance back to the Garden of Eden. So to be buried, there is a sign of your belief in the resurrection. That's what the patriarchs and the matriarchs are saying to you to this day. You can go there to this day and you can see where they're buried. And when you go there, they are telling you there is a resurrection. That's why we're here. And so Yaakov, he knows this. He says, take me there, bury me there. I want my descendants, I want you boys, I want my daughters, I want my descendants to understand there is a resurrection from the dead. And this is gonna be something that's gonna get Judah and Joseph together eventually, is this testimony of the resurrection from the dead. So now we're gonna give you another tool for your toolbox. We've talked about repetition, letting words define words, as long as it's in con- in context, and so this one, remember, is called smichut, smichut. And it, it comes from a Hebrew word, which means to place, to put something. Ani sama et hakos. I placed the cup. All right. Or if Tyler did it, it would be husan. He placed it. Okay. Smichut is going to be a noun construct, which means placement where something is situated in the text will often tell you more than just the plain text itself, right? So in this case, if you see one thing appear in the text before another thing in the text, it might mean that the first thing in the text is taking precedence over the second thing in the text. And in this case, we're going to have a problem. And it's it's going to lead to slavery for the Israelites. So we're in Genesis 50, verse 7. So it says, Yosef went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. And, that's a big and right there, and all the household of Yosef and his brothers and his father's household. Think about that for just a second. Okay, we're going to the... The Israelites' father's funeral, and any funeral you've ever seen, doesn't the family go first? Don't don't not they in the cars in front, and aren't they gathered right around the closest? You know they're at the graveside, and all of a sudden we've got something really odd here, and it's smichut. It's the placement of what's happening here. So we've got Yosef, but with him are all the servants of Paro, not his brothers not his sisters, the elders of the household and the elders of the land of Egypt, not the elders of Israel. These are all the elders of Egypt who were by his side in the funeral procession for his father. It says they left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with them both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. And I would love to do soon a lesson just on the chariots and the horsemen. Because if you understand the chariots of, and their horsemen, then it really helps, you know, if Elisha says, you know, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. It helps if we understand the chariots and the horsemen in various situations in, in the Tanakh. It helps if we see Philip go up into the chariot with the eunuch and the context of what the eunuch was reading in Isaiah and what that says to us. Because it wasn't just that he was sitting there trying to read Hebrew, apparently he already could. He just didn't understand the context of what he's reading. And so Philip, whose name means horseman, goes up into the chariot, and all of a sudden then he's translated to another place. Well, again, like we were saying last week, there are keys to the flexing of space and time. One of those keys is gathering together for the sake of the word and prayer. Another of those keys again, is going to be recognizing what the chariots and their horsemen do, because there's two kinds. There's going to be the Egyptian chariots and their horsemen, but there's also going to be the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And in the Midrash, the the horsemen of Israel are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because they're buried at Hebron, And because they are telling all their descendants there is a resurrection and it's their job to help you cross over from one place to the next when you pass away. Should you pass away before Yeshua comes, these would be the horsemen of Israel coming to help you. Basically, they say, Jacob just pulled his feet in. And that's what you want your life to be. You want to live your life in the garden now. You live according to his word now. And so when that time comes, whenever it's time to punch your... (laughs) time to punch the time clock I said they would just send me the you know a letter and say it's going to be here and at this time I'll just check out let's we don't have to have drama please (laughs) just let me clock out but when it's your time to clock out then it's going and Elisha was allowed to see that so what did he get he got the double portion because he could see it see if he couldn't see it he says you can't have it but if you can see it you can have the double portion. You'll understand the resurrection if you can see it. So he didn't see Eliyahu anymore, but he saw the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. It, apparently, he saw Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But we've got this great company accompanying Yaakov to Hebron. But what we get right here is a little glimpse into the future, because right here, Egypt has taken a domination role. in what universe? Is the family at the back of the procession, but the Egyptians have taken the lead in the funeral processional, and they have taken a very great company of chariots and horsemen. Well, there was a very great company of chariots and horsemen that pursued the Israelites all the way to the Reed Sea where, well, it, it didn't help them then. That, that was the end of their domination. But you can see look, how scripture will give you just a little glimpse of something that's going to happen in the future. Because it, it it's earned at that point. like when you get to the the Reed Sea and you you say, well, you know, how did the Israelites get to be slaves? you know, what is this pursuit? Why are the chariots such a big deal and as part of this story? but it's earned because he told you way back here that, hey look, the Egyptians took the lead at the funeral and they brought a great company of chariots and horsemen. There was a seed planted at that time. And here's what the Canaanites said it in chapter 50, verse 11. So now we've got our, you know, we've got our reporters. (laughs) They're watching this funeral procession and they say, "Hmm, something odd here. (laughs) Now, when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites saw the mourning at the threshing floor of a tide, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. (laughs) Therefore, it was named Avel Mitzrayim, which is beyond the yardage. Sounds odd. These reporters aren't reporting on the grief of Israel's children. They're reporting on the grief of the Egyptians over the death of Yaakov. And where this occurred, it says it's beyond the Yarden. It's at the site of the Jericho crossing. Some of you who have gone to Israel, you've gone to Beit Hogla. I don't know if you remember Erna, Miss Erna. Um, And she's holding down that one spot where you can see Mount Nebo, where Moses was. We don't know if he's buried there or not, but he, that was his last known destination. You can see Jericho. Jericho. You can see where the Israelites crossed the Jordan. You can. It's also in the area where the divine chariot took Eliyahu up, and so it's a significant crossing. In fact, that particular crossing, you're not really in Israel until you cross right there. She said, "Well, they had to cross into Israel." at the end of 40 years, they'd already been in Israel. They'd been all over the southern part of it. They'd been camping out, having a great time down in the Negev, down in the Arava. They were in the land of Israel, but you're not in it until you cross over the Jordan. There's a spiritual precept <laughs> there. If you're not there, it doesn't matter if you landed in Tel Aviv. <laughs> you're not there yet. And so, this is where it happens, and they named it Avel Mitzrayim. They're naming it after Egypt, isn't this wild? And so, um, a tide it means a bramble or a thorn, a bramble or a thorn, and of course, a threshing floor. You know what that's for? And where that comes from is on a threshing floor, you don't want critters coming up there at night, yeah. and you know you don't want rats feeding on your wheat or barley that you've threshed out. So they would surround it with thorns. So the critters of the night couldn't creep in there and and be doing all the things to your food that the Torah says makes it unclean, especially. Mm -hmm. Um, But it, it also means to pierce, to pierce. So we've got some interesting bullet points that Rashi brought up. Again, it says that he just drew in his feet from the natural world. He was pretty much living in the garden already, just pulled his feet in and breathed his last We know that Pharaoh was reluctant to let Yosef go. In fact, he sent accompaniment. Well, there's a kind of a foreshadowing as well. Pharaoh doesn't want to let him go. Uh, We know that uh, according to Rashi, why did the Canaanites note this place? Why did they note this funeral? Well, they say that the kings of Canaan and the princes of Ishmael came to do battle with the sons of Yaakov because they didn't want Jacob buried at Machpelah. That would have been the last piece of that, that resurrection faith. But then they saw Joseph's crown hanging from Jacob's coffin. And it says, they all stood and hung their crowns from it and encircled it with crowns, like a threshing floor encircled by a fence of thorns. And this, they say, was not out of true reverence, but out of fear. They they recognized oh, we're not going to be able to overcome this because it's got the authority of Joseph with it. But this this great lamentation of the Egyptians that, that they're noticing is really odd. And again, some of the Jewish sources say it's because that when Jacob did go down to Egypt, that the famine years were cut short on his account. When he showed up, the days were shortened. Does that sound familiar? And so they knew Egypt was blessed because of Jacob's presence. And so this excessive Egyptian mourning is they think they've lost the blessing of Jacob. Now, they don't necessarily want the God of Jacob. They want the blessing of Jacob. So we've got some, some clues here of a future time. We know that this foreshadows a journey to the promised land, when Israel is going to be restored to a garden destiny. We know that they later crossed over this at this spot with Yehoshua, Joshua, Well, we know in the future we will cross over with Yeshua at that spot, at a tide, at this area near Beit Hogla. We know that just as Joseph changed from being like a father to Pharaoh, this point in the text tells us something has changed. That dynamic has changed, and that Joseph is no longer like a father to Pharaoh. And now Pharaoh is going to become the father, and he is going to become the patron. Of the Israelites, and they are going to fall into subservience at this point. And this I took out of the Shem Tov because the text is a Shem Tov, it's a a copy of the Gospels, uh, a Hebrew rendition of the Gospels. And it's from Matthew 27 27 through 29, and then also verse 32. And this is from the Howard translation. And here's what it says See if it sounds familiar. Then the horsemen of the court took Yeshua under guard and came together before a great company of many people. They clothed Yeshua with silk garments and covered him with a greenish silk robe. They made a crown of thorns and placed it on his head and set a reed in his right hand. Well, remember later they crossed the sea of reeds and were bowing down, mocking him. Peace be upon you, king of the Jews. As they were going from the city, they met a man whose name was Shimon the Canaanite. And they came to a place called Golgotha. Golgotha. Golgotha is the way we pronounce it. But look here, we've got the great company of people. We've got the thorns arranged in a circle. At a later time, we've got a crossing of the Sea of Reeds. And then we've got the Canaanite observing. And then we've got a place called Golgotha which is going to be the place of the skull. It's going to be a place of death. But it reminds us of Yeshua. He was accompanied by Roman horsemen. He was encircled by a crown of thorns, and he was mocked. And of course, that was fear he would start a revolt, because he really was of kingly lineage, that his family was under suspicion for decades after he was crucified because those descendants, those brothers, literally were qualified to sit on the throne of David. So the Romans were a little concerned about him, and they would, from time to time, interrogate them, call them in and interrogate them to see if they had any messianic tendencies. And they're like, no, we're farmers. We have a Canaanite becoming part of a death processional to a place of the skull. And here's what it says about Esau's skull in the, in the Midrash. It says, only Esau's skull was buried in the cave of Machpelah because Esau is Edom, Rome. Rome is the Iron Kingdom. Like the three before him, he was fathered by Pharaoh. So this is kind of showing you, it it kind of gets off into the mist at this point, but it helps you see how not just when Pharaoh Necho was defeated by Babylon later, how that authority was passed off, say, okay, extend this authority over the land-based kingdoms, that are still with us to this day. But we see that father authority that goes with it. We can see the dragon authority that's passed off to those beast kingdoms and we can see that influence today. But you can even see how it influenced the life and the death of Yeshua. How we're, we're crossing at these same places in our generations and that's why I say just because it's the 10th of Tvet and it doesn't look like anything strange happened this week doesn't mean it didn't. And it doesn't mean it won't. And if we'll just keep observing it, marking it in time and saying, hey, let's keep our spiritual eyes open. There may come a day within the next five years, within the next seven years. I don't know exactly how that plays out. But there may come a day where we might start to see things again. The things that we have observed, the things that we have studied in the Torah, we'll see that thing happen again. The siege of Jerusalem, you got to know you're under siege. That part should be clear. What will happen next? Well, we keep looking at these Moadim and we keep looking at the fasts because particular things will recycle. Just like these events where we can see a Torah portion where clearly the the power shift has occurred. Now it's, it's okay. Now Egypt has risen up. The serpent has risen up. We have to watch it because I'm firmly convinced that something has changed in the universe and that the serpent is on his way down he knows it sometimes we don't know it it's just like we're in the 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 wilderness looking around like oh my goodness look at all the canaanites hey look yeshua was surrounded by canaanites so we wouldn't have to be he was surrounded by romans so we wouldn't have to be he's already won that battle and so we keep our eyes on him not the skull you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.